The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Ben Levison, Deputy Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about what's happening in healthcare and with COVID treatments and vaccines. My guest is Josh Nathan Cases, Barron's healthcare reporter. Welcome, Josh. Hey, Ben, good to hear you. Good to talk to you. Good to have you here. So there have been a lot of headlines about COVID recently, more than perhaps we had the last few calls we did together. And it's particularly about the possibility of having to wear masks again, rising cases. Um, What's going on with the virus right now? Yeah, so look, I mean, um, after Thanksgiving, cases have been ticking up again. Um, If you look at the the trackers out there, the hospitalizations are up about 28% um, over the last two weeks. Uh, you know, people still track cases. Uh, that metric is a little bit um, uh, hard to know what it means because of the way the cases are reported or not reported now. But never, nevertheless, that number is up as well, about 28%. Um, the positivity rate of PCR tests is up 41%. You know, the number of people in ICUs is up uh, 21%. Uh, d- deaths are down. Um, they're down by 11%. As we know, deaths are a, are a lagging indicator. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, you know, 260 people per day are, are dying of COVID. I think the concern is that these most of these numbers are moving in the wrong direction. You know, on an absolute basis, if we just look at the number of hospitalizations, they're low relative to most other points during the pandemic. We're talking, you know, 36,000 people a day. Um, uh, you know, you, you can put it in context a little bit. Right now, nationwide, 2.9 out of every hospital, uh, sorry, out of every 100,000 people are hospitalized each day with COVID. At the peak in January, it was 8.2, um, which is vastly higher. Um, in early November uh, of this year, you know, it was 2.2. So we're up a little bit. We're nowhere near where we were. So it doesn't um, sound too bad, right? For sure. But, you know, I think the concern is just that we're moving in the right direction. Yeah. And, and, and is it hitting some groups harder than other groups? Yeah, good, 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 good point. Um, you know, I think if you look at adults aged seventy and up, right now it's if we're talking about new hospital admissions each day, that's twelve point seven people for every hundred thousand people, and that's that's a lot. You know, it was it was around nine people in that age group in early November. Again, you know, in early January, that peaked to twenty eight people per hundred thousand. But twelve point seven is is a pretty big number, and I think it it, it highlights what's important, which is that. At this point in the pandemic, it's it's older adults who are being hit the hardest. And, and this really isn't just about COVID anymore, is it? Right. You know, there, there was an interesting um, media call on Monday where the um, where the uh, uh, the the director of the Center Centers for Disease Control and Prevention spoke uh, to the press, and, and what she was saying was that you know. COVID cases are rising, but there's a broader context of flu and RSV um, happening right now. Um, you know, flu activity is high or very high. Those are sort of the CDC's number or uh, uh, levels um, across much of the country. And it's higher than usual for this time of year. 
Um, the CDC's numbers are that 8.7 million Americans have been ill with flu since the start of October, and 78,000 have been hospitalized, and 4,500 have died, which is quite remarkable. You know, we've heard a lot about RSV as well this year. That that is also a problem, and together these three uh, respiratory viruses are are creating. Um, you know, a bit of pressure on, on hospitals across the country. RSV is, uh, the CDC director said, is plateauing or declining now um, in most regions, which is good news. But the overall respiratory, respiratory disease burden is, is, you know, pretty extraordinary. And, and so how is the CDC considering the convergence of the three viruses? Is it doing anything about it? Yeah, and this is interesting. You know, I, I think that um, when we we're in the midst of the pandemic when one conversation that people had was, you know, will masks be part of our repertory to deal with respiratory viruses over the long term? You know, will we begin to use these in the way that you see them used in other countries outside of the context of COVID? Um, and interestingly, what the CDC director said in response to a question was that right now the CDC advises masking based on um, the level of COVID in a given county. And, and and she said that, in fact, they're thinking about updating that so that it's not only taking into account the effects of, I'm sorry, the level of COVID, but also other respiratory viruses. They're not doing that right now. But it, I think it, 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 you know, points to where this is all going, which is, you know, potentially we have a, a sort of respiratory virus season, you know, late fall and early winter every year, where people, you know, where, where rates of flu, RSV, and, and COVID rise, maybe more one than another on a given year. Um, and, you know, a number of measures are taken together to deal with them as a, as a combined threat. You know, the, the impact on hospitals um, results these days, not just from COVID, but from from these other viruses as well. Um, so I so sort of felt like a, a hint of, of where over the long term we might wind up. Now, obviously, these are different viruses. Um, right now, there's no vaccine for RSV. There are vaccines for flu and COVID, though there actually quite likely will be a vaccine for older adults for RSV next year. Um, um, but, but you know, it's just sort of a suggestion as to where, how we might begin to think about these threats over the long term. And in the short term, does this mean we're going to see a, uh, uh, a winter surge in both COVID cases? And I guess we're already having kind of a surge in the flu? Yeah, I, I don't I don't I don't know that I can like predict what's going to happen with COVID cases. I think the concern is that the cases of COVID will will continue to rise. It's the trajectory that's begun since Thanksgiving will continue, you know, and, and logically, like people are doing more things inside. It's cold. We have holidays coming up where a lot of people travel, um, you know, last year and the year before that led to an increase in cases. There's also, you know, the variant makeup is shifting. BA5, which was the dominant variant in the U.S., up until quite recently, you know, from late summer all the way through until quite recently is no longer um, the dominant variant. Um, there are other variants, they have different characteristics. I don't know if we need to go into the details, but, um, you know, it, it, it adds up to a picture where um, there's certainly a risk of, of an increase in cases. Um, you know, I, I'm, I live in New York and I go on the subway and I look around and, you know, nobody, I should say nobody, but not a lot of people don't wear masks. And I were to go to the grocery store and really nobody's wearing a mask. Um, are we going to see masks wearing, making a comeback? Uh, yeah, that's sort of like a sociological and political question that's that's challenging to, to answer. What I will say is that, you know, this got a lot of attention last week. The um, 
the health officials in L.A. County said that they will bring back an indoor mask mandate if cases continue to climb. I think it's hard to imagine, uh, you know, except in the most extreme circumstances of indoor mask mandates returning across much of the country. There was such a strong political reaction to those um you know, and, and you saw them really evaporate over the course of the last year. Now, right now, the CDC advice is that in U.S. counties where the COVID level is high, and that's about 5% of counties, they recommend indoor mask wearing um, in, in the counties that, that they say are, are medium risk or, or, I guess, medium level of COVID. Um, they recommend high-risk people wearing masks indoors. Taken together, it's like 40, 35% of the country, uh, or at least and that, that's of the counties. So it's it's a little tricky to to translate that into population numbers, but if you go onto the CDC website, you can see enter in your county and see. When I looked earlier in the week, um, much of the New York City area is high risk, except actually Manhattan itself is is or is a you know high level of circulation. Manhattan was not when I looked, um, although um, you know that was that was a few days ago. They actually update today, and I haven't looked today. Um, but you know, I, I think this this could if we do see a surge. Uh, you know, it could end up being um, a political issue as it, as it was throughout, um, you know, earlier this year. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's up to each individual in the end, you know, what they decide to do. The CDC does still recommend masking um, on planes, trains and buses, although those requirements in, I think, all cases have been lifted. Um, that's right. And then um, so vaccines are still an important part of this. Um, today, the FDA approved uh, the, the uh, bivalent vaccines for um, for children under five. Um, how big a deal is that? Yeah. And actually, before I answer that, I should just, you know, I just want to mention something I think is important related to vaccines that I haven't said, which is that, you know, these bivalent vaccines have been available for months and the penetration is surprisingly low, um, you know, something like 12, 13 percent of Americans over the age of five have gotten a, a bivalent booster, bivalent booster, and adults in the highest risk age group, the 65 and up, um, it's it's something like 30 percent. And you know, though, as as we mentioned before, it's it's adults 70 and up who are really getting hospitalized at the at the, at the highest rate right now from COVID. And um, you know, I think thinking about the risks heading into the winter, it's it's the low vaccination rates, the low levels of bivalent booster take up among that older adult age group that I think is potentially the most worrying. Now, as you say, uh, the FDA today authorized vaccines for younger, young children. And people may recall there's been um, a long contentious history around uh, vaccines for this age group. Um, it took longer than in for adults. Uh, boosters were late in coming. Now that the bivalent boosters have been authorized both from Pfizer and Moderna for um, five for everyone down to age six months. The, the details are actually quite complicated and has to do with the difference between the dose levels in the Pfizer and Moderna um, vaccines for these age groups. You know, Pfizer went with a very low dose vaccine uh, and a three dose series. If you got all three doses of the Pfizer, you can't get the bivalent booster. If you got one, do both doses of the Moderna, you can get a third dose. I, I, people who who for whom this is relevant should look. It's quite complicated, and um, I can imagine that uh, you know parents and caregivers of people in this age group are going to be scratching their heads a bit. Um, but you know, it, it it does as the you know FDA officials said in their statement today. It it, it offers the possibility of added pr protection going into what could be a period of higher circulation of the virus.
but it sounds like it could be complicated enough that it doesn't uh, help with that uptake of, uh, of boosters uh, either. Potentially, uh, you know, on the other hand, I'm sure doctors who are actually making these decisions or guiding these decisions can figure it out. Right. Um, but for lay people, I, I, I found it confusing. Okay, well, let's move on from COVID. Um, I think one of the interesting things we saw this week was that Zantech, um, it's a heartburn uh, medicine that uh, I believe is no longer sold, was in the news again. Can you explain what's going on? Yeah, so this this has been interesting. Zantac, um, as you mentioned, was pulled in 2020 from the market. It was an over-the-counter Harper medication. It was pulled over contamination concerns, and you know, uh, I believe Sanofi sold it at the time, took it off the market, um, and uh, you know, took it quite seriously. There's been a lot of research since then, and the companies say that in fact um, the concerns were not legitimate, and that um, this the this medication did not cause cancer as, as was um, claimed. Um, but the companies that have sold this this drug faced thousands of lawsuits from people who said they had had um, developed cancer because of the drug. And, uh, you know, it's, it's an unusual situation because Zantac got, so, so GlaxoSmithKline, GSK, got approval for Zantac as a prescription drug in the US in 1983. It went over the counter in 1995. And after 1998, it got passed around from company to company. So at various times, it was sold by Pfizer, by um, Boehringer Ingelheim, by Sanofi, and by others that were acquired by one or more of those companies. Um, and Halion, which is a consumer health company that spun out of uh, GlaxoSmithKline and separated from, was, was a joint venture between Glaxo and Pfizer, um, it separated earlier this year. It also had potential liability because, um, uh, I mean, Halion said they didn't have liability, but but there was a concern that they might because uh, Pfizer and Glaxo had separately sold it at different times. So I mean, that's a crazy history. Um, and so it, it, what's that link between uh, contamination and the possibility of it, of it can causing cancer? Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm it, not like, I can't, I can't go into detail on the sort of the scientific claims here, but yeah. the, there, there was a concern about the, about contamination and, um, and it led to these concerns about particular cancers. Um, and there were thousands of lawsuits filed in state and federal courts in the U.S. over this. Yeah, and, and those lawsuits, um, I know by the market, they, they were kind of ignored for a while. And then all of a sudden that changed. Um, what got investors' attention? Yeah, so this was very strange. Like one day in August, a, an analyst at UBS downgraded Sanofi and mentioned um, Zantac litigation as an overhang. And over the next two days, seemingly just because of that mention and investors becoming aware of this, um, shares of Sanofi, of Glaxo, and Halion fell very sharply. Uh, I mean, tens of billions of dollars in market value were, were erased over the course of two days um, as investors digested these concerns. And the wow. companies, I should say, at that time, previous to that time, and since that time, have insisted that their position is that Zantac did not cause harm to, to, to the patients who took it. And now a judge has agreed with them. Yes. And, and this was probably the, the best outcome these companies could have hoped for that a federal judge in Florida who was overseeing what's called a multi-district litigation, which is when um, federal courts pull together lots of lawsuits um, that are basically bringing the same claims. This, you saw this in the opioid litigation, for example, and you see it um, in, in a lot of other similar uh, cases. These are very complex, complex proceedings. Um, there had been a motion to dismiss, and the judge, in a, in a 300.
Dr. Paige Ruling um, decided to, to dismiss the case. And, and she wrote, her name is uh, Judge Rosenberg. She wrote that essentially there is no, she, she determined that no scientist outside of the litigation had concluded that um, ranitidine, which is the generic name of Zantac, causes cancer. And then it, over the course of these 300 pages, went through the, the experts that the plaintiffs had brought and showed why, you know, she didn't believe that their um, conclusions were, were correct. Um, so this, again, is, is the best possible outcome that the companies could have hoped for. Um, it doesn't mean that the litigation is over, but it's quite a, a dramatic development in, in this story. Yeah, those stocks uh, seem to have done well. So, so what happens next here? Well, so the plaintiffs have said they're going to appeal. Um, and, and in addition to the federal cases, there are also cases in state court, um, in California, Delaware, and elsewhere. And, you know, those um, will continue. Um, so it's, it's a, we, we can't predict what will happen. But I think a substantial portion of the, of the worry was, was erased and the stocks went up pretty sharply um, in the hours after this ruling was made public. Yeah, um, how much did they go up? So Tuesday afternoon, Glaxo went up 8%. I mean, it's big. You know, Sanofi went up 10%. These are, these are the ADRs I'm talking about, um, not not the, you know, London and um, Paris traded stocks. Uh, and Halion went up 7%. They, they were down a bit on Wednesday. But, um, you know, for investors who'd been uh, disappointed in the performance of these stocks, it was uh, it was quite an afternoon. And, and Halion stock in particular, I'm just looking at a chart here. Uh looks uh, pretty interesting um you know had that big spike fell um as you said on wednesday but uh it looks like it's trying to make a run at the the high that it had on tuesday which would be pretty impressive um, yeah and we you know we we wrote a positive story a very positive story about Haley a number of months ago that there's a lot of pressures on the stock including zantac the other being that you know glaxo and pfizer own something like 40 percent of the shares and have said they're going to sell them um, which i think has been you know discouraging to other investors thinking about getting in but but we've seen, you know, I think that the performance of the stock has been pretty good over the past few months. And, um, uh, you know, the, the, the company is uh, an interesting story and part of a, you know, interesting emerging sector of standalone peer play consumer health companies that I think is worth watching. Well, it sure seems like there's one less thing for those investors to worry about. Um, so, Josh, let's talk about, uh, I think, one of the biggest healthcare stories of last week, and maybe it's it's one of the biggest of the year as well, but what's going on with Biogen's Alzheimer's drugs? Can you get us up to date? Yeah. So this, yeah, as you say, definitely the biggest story of the week last week. Um, we've talked about this a lot here on, on this on this program, previous calls. Um, you know, Biogen and its partner, the Japanese drug maker, Aisai, have an Alzheimer's drug that that's called lecanemab. And last week they presented full data on a phase three trial of, of the drug. And, and what listeners will recall is that in September they had, they had um, presented the you know, top line data, uh, a press release describing the results of the trial, but not giving the full results. And they had said at the time that cognitive decline in the patients in the trial was 20% less than those who received the placebo. That was uh, quite a shock. Yeah, I mean, I remember watching Biogen stock and it just uh, popped on this news. Why was it such a surprise? So, uh, right, right. Well, look, I mean, um, uh, you know, as, as we've talked about before, the, there, this is part of a class of drugs. Lecanemab is a member of a class of drugs that includes Adjahelm um, and, and many other attempts at Alzheimer's treatments that have generally failed to produce 
convincing results in years and years of trials. This was, um, you know, one last chance and uh, it seemed to hit it out of the park, um, which I think was was not expected, you, you know, um, and, and this is this is the I mean, I, I, I don't know if I need to remind people about Agilehelm, but Agilehelm, you know, got approved in the summer of 2021, despite the FDA's own advisory committee saying that um, that they didn't think the drug should be approved. The price was very high. Um, there was concern it would overwhelm what Medicare and and eventually the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services said they wouldn't pay for it. And the drug the commercialization efforts were effectively dropped. Um, and now Lacanumab is, is the new one and, and the company is uh, is going to try again. And, and they're coming with what appears to be far better data than they had for Agilehelm. So this one works? Um, well, that's a different question. Uh, the, the trial was positive. It, it hit its goal. And um, that means that it, you know, using certain metrics, the cognitive decline of the people who took it was somewhat slower than the people who didn't take it. There are a lot of remaining questions, I think, about clinical relevance, the, the clinical relevance of that benefit, you know, how how much of a difference people will actually see, um, and also safety. And I should say, you know, the safety questions grew pretty sharply in the in the weeks before the presentation. There was a report in the um, healthcare news website Stat about one death pos uh, possibly linked to lecanemab, um, and then Science Magazine uh, had another report. These people were um, both participants in the trial, it seems, although they the deaths occurred not during the trial itself, but during what's known as an open label extension period. But you know, when when uh, I say presented the full results of the trial, this, they seem reassuring on safety. It seemed like those two cases were the only um, deaths, and then the safety concerns were were not sort of the worst case scenario. Although it seems to me that the clinical relevance questions were not fully solved, that uh, settled rather that. There, there were the findings that they had presented in September did seem to be backed up. I think the, the, the remaining question is like how dramatic, how significant is that 27% um, less decline? Um, and, yeah. and, and if I remember correctly, there was even an article that uh, um, ISI uh, had um, released that called for longer trials, right? Yeah, so they, in addition to this presentation, which they made at a big Alzheimer's conference, they also wrote a scientific paper that was published in the New England Journal, which is the big medical journal. And its conclusion did call for longer trials of lecanemab. Now, I, I did ask one of the experts who wrote the paper about this and what she'd meant, and they said, well, we were talking about future trials. Um, we hadn't meant to say that this trial wasn't sufficient to measure lecatimab's benefit in this particular study population. So, um, but 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 still, you know, there has been commentary since that the I think we, I may have said this the last time we had this call. You know, the the particular scale that was the main measure for this trial is you know um, something like a, a it was basically the difference between the two was like a half point difference on not a very large scale. And I think there were questions about how how important that difference really is when you are dealing with actual human patients and not a very large study population that you're you know, taking an average difference, uh, uh, an average of. So um, those are the questions. And I think those are the questions that the FDA will be considering and eventually that the Center for Medicaid, Medicare and Medicaid Services are going to be considering when they decide whether or not to pay for it. And so what are the next steps? So um, in January, so I say is already asked for accelerated approval of this 
drug. Um, you know, the FDA gave accelerated approval to aducanumab, um, which uh, which was the you know the, the name of Agihelm before it got approved, um, and it's the name of the drug as opposed to the brand name. Um, uh, it's I would it would be surprising I think if I say I didn't get accelerated approval for lecanemab, which does seem better. Um, then I say we'll ask for full approval, but then also there is a process that they presumably will have to go through with uh, Center for Medi Medicare and Medicaid Services to get them to agree to pay for it. That would probably happen after they get full approval. Um, and one last thing I wanted to ask about, because uh, someone brought, I think it was an analyst who brought this up, but there was some speculation maybe that Biogen and ISI maybe aren't getting along. Yeah, I don't know. I don't quite know what to make of this or how important it is. Uh, you know, this analyst you, you mentioned, a Mizuho analyst, um, put out a note the, the day after the presentation noting that ISI hadn't mentioned Biogen in the presentation. Um, there had been some questions in the past about whether there might be some contractual disputes going on. A different analyst had talked about it on a reader call, uh, on an investor call. Um, Biogen in the past had played down the issue, and I, when I asked them, ISI about it the day after the presentation, they didn't respond. Biogen just said, you know, we have the rights to co-commercialize and co-promote the drug. So I, I don't I don't really know what's going on. I don't know if it matters if they are having a dispute. I mean, they have a deal. Um, but it is something that people do seem to be talking about. Okay. Well, let's go to a few reader questions. Um, one re reader, Stu, asked, uh, do you think that Eli Billy's obesity drug will be a blockbuster? Yeah, I think that that is... Um, that's the expectation. Uh, it certainly seems as though once they get approval, there will be quite a market for it. I mean, as people know, it's already approved as a diabetes treatment. Um, and there seems to be a lot of demand for people who want to take it off label for an obesity treatment. Actually, in the past few days, there was a report that they had um, limited that. Um, but it, I think it just points to the, the demand that will likely exist for this drug once it gets, gets approved. Um, and then Larry was asking, uh, what do you make of the rise in M&A activity in primary care brick and mortar companies, clinics, and what does that mean for the healthcare space in general? I think this is a really interesting trend and in that there's been a real uptick in this over the last 12 months. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure if we can, if, if I have like a great theory on what it means for the healthcare space in general, but, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's something important to watch and, uh, you know, there are some big deals recently involving um, a group that Walgreens owns um, and and, uh, and another group that had been put together with some big chains. A lot of activity here, and I, I, I doubt that it's ending anytime soon. Um, and if you don't mind, Josh, I thought I'd tackle one last question. This one from Amira. Um, it's about, she asks, uh, uh, do you consider the healthcare ETF uh, as a growth sector? And would you buy um, ETF such as uh, IBB, which is the biotech ETF, or XLV, which is the uh, healthcare sector ETF, or both. Um, I think the main point that, that I want to make there is that XLV will have a lot of the same stocks that I think that are in IBB, um, mm -hmm. and just with different weightings. And so I think you just want to be careful that you're not getting too much exposure to uh, healthcare, though it, it, it is. What's nice about healthcare is it does have those elements of growth that investors want. Um, but it, it also does have that defensive side to it because um, 
you know, people need their health care. We get sick and we have to get taken care of. Um, so there's a defensive aspect to it uh, also. Um, it kind of makes the sector, this is uh, something Gregory asked about, you know, which stocks in the group represent the best opportunity for GARP, which is uh, growth at a reasonable price. And I think with a lot of health care stocks, uh, the, the sector in general, you do find a lot of GARP characteristics. Um, so I think it's just being careful to not overload on these. Um, if you want a little extra biotech in your healthcare portfolio, maybe reduce uh, the, the healthcare sector ETF just a little bit to offset it. Um, but uh, they are interesting ways to play it. That makes sense to me. All right. Well, I think we're going to end it there, Josh. Thank you for being here. And thank you to the audience for tuning in. Uh, please join us tomorrow for a discussion on the darker side of money. Market Watch reporters will review some of the wildest financial fraud cases of 2022. They also take a look ahead at new developments and themes in financial crime that can be expected in 2023 and what steps law enforcement regulators and financial institutions will be taking to combat them. Thank you again for listening. Stay well and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.